Welcome back to Corruption of Child Protection Services. I'm your host, David Shore. Now, when we left off, we started finding out that the courts aren't exactly in the favor of the family. In fact, in the late 1800s, it really started heating up. In fact, in 1899, Illinois promulgated the first juvenile court whose stated purpose was to provide for the care and custody children in a manner that was an alternative equivalent to that of their parents. By 1920, all but three states had a juvenile court system. Finally, it appeared things were looking up. The family would not be separated. But wait. But the goal of family unification was rarely realized by the early juvenile courts because few services were made available to assist poor, uneducated parents in curing the conditions that led to state intervention. Instead, children remained in out-of-home placements for considerable periods of time. For instance, in Chicago, the city with the nation's first juvenile court, the rate of family reunification in 1921 was about the same as in 1912. That was at 70%. But in 1921, more children were staying in institutions for longer periods than in 1912. So, the laws changed, but the result didn't. You know, maybe we should check the Constitution to see if things can be made better. Yeah, you remember our founding fathers made a document so we would have uh, the laws written in such a way that hmm, it would actually help. Well, the Constitution and child protection laws. Well, that states that leading between 1875 and 1900, numerous challenges to the vague legal definition of child dependency and the informal legal proceedings to the separation of parents and children were denied. So between 1875 and 1900, 25 years, the legal proceedings denied... the separation of parents and child. You know, the early court decisions did not speak in terms of parents' constitutional rights to rear their children, did not closely circumscribe the state's parents patria power to protect children, rejected arguments based upon criminal law analogies, you know something? It failed to articulate procedural due process protections for families caught in the child protection legal maelstrom. Well, in short, parents did not have rights to their own children. You know, I always believed that if you conceived a child, gave birth to that child, that the child was your child to raise as you see fit. Am I missing something?
you know, let's continue and find out. I mean, after all, I don't think uh, it could get any worse. But, you know, sometimes I've been wrong about things like that. Although state and county juvenile courts continue to evolve and to provide different levels of due process and child protection proceedings, the modern child dependency court development was shaped by several decisions of the U.S. Supreme Court, which formalized the court process. One of the such cases is Myers v. Nebraska, a 1923 Supreme Court case. The court held that parents have a fundamental constitutional liberty interest in rearing their children. Based upon that liberty interest, the court held in Lassiter v. Department of Social Services, a 1981 Supreme Court case, that under certain circumstances, parents are entitled to court-appointed attorneys when they face involuntary termination of their parental rights and child protection proceedings. Ah, let's go back to the case that I had spoken of in the previous. Now, if you remember, the DCS, the Indiana Department of Child Services, trial court reprimanded and reversal of parental rights termination. Let's review. A father will have his parental rights restored after an Indiana Court of Appeals ruling that reiterated the Department of Child Services does not have the authority to set policy inconsistent with the law. Now, a little background. Soon after his son was born in Indiana, E.H. moved to Florida to live with his parents and prepare for the child for the child and mother to join him. Now they were from another state. The initials E.H. is the name of the child. Or at least the initials. When the mother eventually admitted to DCS, Department of Child Services, that she was unable to care for the child due to homelessness, a child in need of services petition was filed. When E.H. subsequently sought custody of the child, he was informed that a home inspection in accordance with the interstate compact on the placement of children was required before the child could be placed with him. That process never happened by the time the child was adjudicated a child in need of services. However, because E.H. had returned to Indiana to seek custody. So, the child was adjudicated. Hmm. Let's continue. E.H. participated in some services ordered by DCS, Department of Child Services, but not all, and the department eventually filed to terminate his parental rights. The Dearborn Circuit Court ultimately ordered the termination and E.H. appealed contending that determination order must be reversed due to the tainted proceedings in the case. Wow, I'm in Indiana and I'm shocked that the proceedings in the case was tainted. Well, let's see what the Court of Appeals has to say. The Indiana Court of Appeals agreed with E.H., citing with his argument that DCS's failure to place the child with him 
and requiring him to complete the ICPS, ICPC, correction, process was a procedural error that resulted in the improper termination of his parental rights. Citing in DB 43NE3D599604, that's the Indiana Court of Appeals from 2015, the appellate court noted that the ICPC does not apply to placement with an out-of-state parent. Now, that the interstate compact on the placement of children, that's the ICPC. And dis- and disagreed with DCS's assertion that at the time EH was required to comply with the ICPC, the question of whether ICPC did not apply to a parent in every circumstance arguably remained unclear. That was from the appellate court. Let's read on. The majority opinion was the law, and DCS and the trial court were required to comply with that law. This is from Judge Elizabeth Tavitas, wrote for the appellate court. DCS continually reaffirmed that its policy required father to comply with the ICPC, despite our prior ruling that an ICPC is not required for natural parents. And now let's read that again. DCS continually reaffirmed that its policy required father to comply with the ICPC, despite our prior ruling that an ICPC is not required for natural parents. Wow. So it wasn't required if he's the father, he's the biological father. But according to DCS, Department of Child Services, it was required. Continue that importantly, DCS testified at the fact finding. Ooh, this is getting very interesting, isn't it, folks? At the fact finding hearing that it was still DCS's policy to require an ICPC for a parent. We are dismayed that DCS fails to understand the law regarding the ICPCs and applicability to natural parents or assuming DCS understands the law. DCS has chosen to ignore it. Department of Child Services ignores it to get a child? Wow. We find it unconscionable that DCS continues to require an ICPC for natural parents despite our court's reiteration that an ICPC is not required for natural parents. The law on this issue is well stated. The appellate court wrote, on court examination as case, the DCS caseworkers stated that compliance with the ICPC, even for out-of-state parents, is their policy. DCS, however, does not have the authority to set policy inconsistent with the law. And DCS is reminded that it cannot ignore the law and must set policy based upon the law. Well, folks, that came straight from the appellate court. And that was this year. When we return, 
Let's see if that continued back in the past. I mean, after all, how long can CPS continue to violate the law? Couldn't be for centuries or at least decades. When we come back, you'll find out. Welcome back. You know, we talked about termination of parental rights. Let's see. Well, in Santosky v. Kramer, a 1982 Supreme Court case, the court held that the state has the burden of demonstrating by clear and convincing evidence that termination of parental rights is necessary to protect children. Local juvenile courts no longer had unbridled discretion to informally and permanently separate parents and children. However, the U.S. Constitution became the sounding board only in cases involving permanent severance of parental rights. States are still free to provide fewer due process procedural rights in temporary child protection cases. Well, it seems that the courts have stated we, as parents, have a fundamental constitutional liberty interest in rearing their children. Unfortunately, states are still free to provide fewer due process, due procedural rights in temporary child protection cases. So, where do we go from here? Well, the authors go further to explain this. Federal statutory policy. You know where this is going. But if you don't, follow along. In the 1980s and 1990s, the autonomy of state child protection schemes was further compromised and um, homogenized by a series of federal statutes. In 1980, Congress passed the first comprehensive Federal Child Protective Services Act, the Adoption Assistance and Child Welfare Act of 1980, publication 96-272, which focused on state economic incentives to substantially decrease the length and number of foster care placements. I think I'll read that twice if you're wondering if you heard it correct, which focused on state economic incentives to substantially decrease the length and number of foster care placements. Well, I thought CPS wasn't supposed to have that many children. This act also required specifically Family Reunification Services, reflecting the goals of the 1909 White House Conference. However, in 1997, in order to cure many of the defects in the 1980 Act, Congress passed the Adoption and Safe Families Act, which shifted the focus from family unification to expeditious permanency for children and adoptive placements. 
all state child protection systems adopted the federal guidelines as a requirement for receiving federal subsidies. In short, ladies and gentlemen, it was money paid to CPS. Thus, because of constitutional and federal statutory requirements, the genesis of America's child protection system had led to great uniformity among state programs. Well, it appears we still have a very long way to go. The goal was reunification, not permanency in foster homes or adoption. Wow. Kids are supposed to go home to their families. They're supposed to have reunification. Help the parents in any way they see. Find out if a mother, father, or both have a substance abuse problem. Get them the help that they need. Get them into these programs. Parenting classes. Budgeting classes. Everything and anything that is needed so that the children can come home. Not that CPS could make money off of them. Some reports indicate that CPS gets as much as $250,000. I've seen it as high as $1 million to adopt a child out. And anywhere from $2,000 up to $10,000 per child per month, every month that the child remains in state's custody. This is inexcusable. CPS is probably going to be listening to this and saying he is lying. But this is information you can find out anywhere on the internet. Just do your research and you can find out. I'll guarantee you, you're not going to like what you see. Especially if you go on YouTube, Bill Bowen, B-O-W-E-N, former federal investigator. There are three parts to his documentary, Innocence Destroyed. I must warn you. You decide to watch this these parts have a strong stomach because the children shown they're in state's care. These aren't from their biological families. So let's recap. Christopher Columbus kidnaps and sells indigenous people, thus making them slaves. When the indigenous people began to dwindle due to dying in mines and overwork, the Spaniards decided to go to Africa and kidnap and purchase a people there and sell them back home and in countries such as Great Britain and a new country called the United States. Slavery was abolished on January 31st, 1865. So a new commodity had to be found. That commodity was none other than our own children. The government said to poor and immigrant families that it was the best interest of children that the children be removed, not for abuse or neglect, but for poverty. Yet you probably say that never happens here. You want more proof that this is still going on? 
How about the crisis on the Mexican-United States border? Think that began under President Trump? How about the militarization of the border? Separation of families. What if I were to tell you that this actually started under another administration and the current administration continues it? In 1994, the Clinton administration launched Operation Gatekeeper, a program that massively increased funding for Border Patrol operations in the San Diego sector of the border in California. The federal government greatly stepped up enforcement in this sector and built a 14-mile wall between San Diego and Tijuana. Operation Gatekeeper roughly marks the beginning of a two-decade running process of ever-increasing border militarization that has continued steadily throughout the Clinton, Bush, and Obama administration, and also the current Trump administration. This has meant that every year there are more Border Patrol agents, National Guardsmen, helicopters, fences, towers, Checkpoints, sensors, guns, and dogs along the border. Understanding the nature of this militarization will go a long way towards clarifying what's actually happening and why. That was from the author Designed to Kill. The author is unknown. So, if this acceleration of militarization on the border began with President Clinton, to what end? Ever hear of the CCA? That stands for Corrections Corporation of America. Or the American Legislative Exchange Council, ALEC. What, you have not? You know, it's not surprising. Many Americans don't. How about the Arizona State Bill 1070, which enter, which, among other things, would require police to lock up anyone they stop who cannot show proof of having entered the country legally. This was drafted in December of 2009 at the Grand Hyatt Hotel in Washington, D.C. That was December of 2009 under then Barack Obama. So, who deported more in one year? Well, let's go over the numbers. Between 1997 and 2001, during the presidency of Bill Clinton, about 870,000 people were deported from the United States. Between 2001 and 2008, during the presidency of George W. Bush, about 2 million people were deported from the United States. Wow. Between 2009 and 2016, during the presidency of Barack Obama, about 2.9 million people were deported from the United States. You know, it's real interesting. I have to say, and under this president, they were about one million. Under Trump, 
ICE deportations fell to 226,119 in fiscal 2017, then ticked up to, to over 250,000 in fiscal 2018 and hit a Trump administration high of 282,242. This fiscal year of 2019. So in one year, the most Donald Trump deported in a fiscal year is 282,242. If you added all them up from 226,119, then add 250,000, and then 282,242. It's around 800,000 people who were deported. And there were children put in those cages. And guess what? It was under then Vice President Joe Biden and President Barack Obama. Who actually put them in cages. For their own safety. When we return... What I will say next will probably get a lot of people upset, but I believe that it has to be told. So get ready, because we're about ready to go on a ride. So fasten your seatbelts. Welcome back. Have a question. If we need the illegals for the work, most Americans won't work. Then why does ICE go and capture them and deport them? Well, the answer is from the unknown author of the essay, Designed to Kill, from crimethinc.com. Quote, first of all, it's as plain as day that the economy of the United States of America is dependent in no small part on the hyper-exploitation of undocumented labor. If the government were to actually build a 2,000-mile-long Berlin Wall tonight and then somehow round up and deport every undocumented person in the country tomorrow, there would be massive and immediate disruption in the agriculture and animal exploitation industries, not to mention in every relay to construct everything related to construction, quite possibly leading to a serious breakdown in the national food distribution network and conceivably even famine. Unquote. The author also states what I have stated earlier. Quote, like the rest of the Western Hemisphere, the land that is currently called the United States of America was stolen from its rightful inhabitants by European colonists through a well-documented orgy of bloodshed, massacre, treachery, and genocide of proportions so epic that they are arguably unprecedented in the thousands of, of other gruesome years of human history preceding them and unsurpassed in the heartily tranquil ones that follow. This monstrous crime has been in progress for over 500 years and has never been atoned for in any meaningful way and continues to be perpetrated to this day. 
Well, it sounds like rich white men continue to do what they want without any regard for whom they harm, as long as it's business as usual. Why else is the president of the United States a businessman? So, you may be asking, what does this have anything to do with human trafficking or legal kidnapping? In a word, everything. Did you notice what wasn't said? How about a warrant or court order to deport? Is ICE above the law? Where do th- where they do not need a warrant or court order to arrest and deport illegals? Sounds like what CPS does, don't you think? They use terms like exigent circumstances and in the best interest of the children. They use it all the time. And the courts, well, they don't do anything. They say, oh yeah, it's in the best interest of the children. No evidence to prove that there's abuse. They many times take the children. There are times, though, that children are being abused and CPS does absolutely nothing. They turn a blind eye, a deaf ear. There's a child that dies at the hands of their family. Maybe they'll go to jail. Maybe they'll do some time in jail or prison. Chances are they'll probably get a slap on the wrist and say, don't do it again. How many times have you heard that? So, let's see how this applies in the next part. A uh, website, hslda.org. COVID-19 panic leads to false CPS report. Since we're in COVID-19 right now, I thought it would be appropriate to read off a little bit of what is going on. So, here's a summary. A perfect... Perfectly normal trip to the bank ended in this family being investigated by CPS. A bank. Of all places. How many of you went to the bank with your children? There's no problem with that. Under COVID. You know. Maybe not everybody come in the bank at the same time. Early in March of this year. When a homeschooling family in Kentucky returned home from a running errands in town, two officials, a Child Protection Services CPS investigator and a law enforcement officer were waiting, demanding to interview their children and examine them for bruises. So far, it sounds like, you know, homeschooling equals abuse. Let's continue. Why did this happen? Well, short version. That day, mom and dad had gone to the bank with five of their children. Boy, I'm just reading this right now. Mom and dad got busy. Five kids? 
Let's continue. The bank staff criticized them for bringing so many people into the building in light of COVID-19, which I can understand. The social distancing guidelines. So the dad stood outside with the children while the mom transacted their business. That's it. Well, it sounds like the dad did a good job. He decided, okay, I'm going to bring the kids outside. Mom, you take care of this. The incident offers some important takeaways. First, with tensions heightened and stay-at-home orders generally in place during the current health crisis, some people may be more likely to report out and about children as possible victims of neglect or abuse. Second, this family's experience confirms the need for CPS reform, something HSLDA has been advocating for years. So these advocates have stated, hey, CPS has to be reeled in. Reform it. Okay. Now, any Mitch McConnell fans over there, because this says, welcome to Kentucky. Bill and Christy, not their real names, are from New York City. They decided the kids needed a house with a backyard to play in, so they moved Christy and the kids to Kentucky before Bill could transition his work from New York. Christy has a Kentucky driver's license, and Bill still has a New York license. So they decided from this, you know, since Christy is from Kentucky, just move the kids back. Sounds like it's a good idea. Let's continue. While Bill was in Kentucky on one of his frequent visits, the family ran errands, as any family in the middle of a move does. They loaded up their seven children in the van and made their way around town, working through their errand list. All seven children went into the various businesses with them until the family got to the bank, where the oldest two children asked to stay in the van. Okay, let's stop right there. Now, yes, I am reading this, but let's read this over again. Now, remember, the bank got upset because five children are coming in there. While Bill was in Kentucky on one of his frequent visits, the family ran errands. Okay, they're running errands. They loaded up their seven children in the van and made their way around town, working through their errand list. What was wrong with this picture? Anyone seen the problem? All the other businesses they went into, no problem whatsoever. They, all seven kids went in, the stores the places they did errands, hey, no problem. Then they got to the bank. And only had five children because the other two were in the vehicle, remember. Okay. A COVID-19 warning sign was posted on the bank's front door. At the desk, the teller immediately interrogated Bill and Christy about why they had brought five kids into the bank at one time. She told them they could not get within six feet of her and that they needed to take the children out. 
Christie explained that the children were too young to be left unsupervised by an adult, and neither she nor Bill could take them elsewhere because the couple were opening a joint account and both had to be present. Let me stand and stop right here. Many places you can have no more than 10 people. Sounds like the children, two of the children were there, five went with them, and you had the parents. So that's seven. Sounds like it's good. Okay, let's proceed. While Bill stayed with the children away from the counter, Christy opened the account feeling self-conscious as the staffs whispered to each other and watched her family suspiciously. When Bill walked to the counter to show his New York ID and to sign, the bank staff asked why Bill's and Christie's identifications were from different states, which the couple explained. When they left, Christie told Bill she would never go back to into that bank. She's used to having people comment on her large family but this was too much. Boy. So, in other words, what I'm hearing is, oh, Bill and Christy, they had a large family. And the bank stating, you know, about COVID-19 and everything, but they didn't think much of it until they got in there Bill's driver's license, remember, is from New York. Chrissy's is from Kentucky. He had just moved there. But it sounds like as we return, things got a little heated. And CPS got involved over false allegations of abuse. Welcome back. You know, I feel sorry for this family. I really do. The article continues, Then the family arrived back at their house. A female law enforcement officer and male CPS investigator were there waiting and immediately separated the children from Bill and Christy. Hmm. So far, I don't hear about any uh, warrant or court order. The official stated that they needed to do a safety check on the family's five children, not seven, because it had been reported that the children were out in public with a strange man who was not their father, and they had bruises on their arms as though they had been improperly grabbed. Excuse me. Let's go back to this. Let's see. Hmm. Christy explained that the children were too young to be left unsupervised by an adult. Hmm. Bill stayed with the children away from the counter. So far, what we've heard so far is that Bill was a good father. Didn't show any signs of abuse or anything. Didn't even sound like that they had been abused. The CPS investigator moved all seven of the children farther away from Bill and Christie's and questioned the kids. At least one of the boys had to remove his shirt on the investigator's orders. So far, what they've done is violated the parents' rights. Parents should be in view. They're not. 
according to CPS's rules. The girls would have to have had to do the same, but Chrissy objected and insisted on being present for the girls' physical examinations. Good for mom. The investigator pulled up the girls' sleeves, lifted their clothing, and took pictures. Christy and Bill's 10-year-old daughter, in particular, felt extremely uncomfortable having her privacy and dignity invaded in this way. Excuse me, who's the degenerates now? They're taking pictures of these kids? Having them lift up their shirts and everything? Why not take it to a doctor? Did you notice that they did not take him or ask him to go to a doctor, to an emergency room or anything? And the parents are the ones under investigation. Of course, the children did not have bruises. What a shock. What a surprise. Yet, here these guys are taking pictures of children in states of undress. This is a police officer and a CPS social worker or investigator. How many people are starting to get upset about this? The parents did not do this. It was the police and CPS. Sounds like we're investigating the wrong people. Now, here we go. The false allegations. And, of course, when the CPS investigator learned Bill and Christy were homeschooling, uh-oh, there's that word, homeschooling. He didn't think they could adequately educate all their children. He asked what curriculum they were using, which had nothing to do with the false allegations. So what if they're homeschooling? There is no question that, by this time, the investigator did know the allegations were false. Not only did the children have no bruises, but Bill was clearly not an unrelated male. Uh, his last name on his New York driver's license proved it. You know, another thing could prove it, too. It's called a birth certificate. Get the birth certificate of all the kids. Bill would have been the biological father of all the children. They could easily prove that. But this is CPS, by the way. <laughs> Isn't this fun? The caseworker told Chrissy that all her children needed physical exams, even though the report of injury was false and there were no other concerns. Okay, so they're going to have physical exams. Christy explained that she had already tried to get new patient appointments, but none were available until May. So, in other words, before she even got there, she tried to get that done. The caseworker then told her to take the kids to the health department. She told him that she was pregnant and that taking all the kids to the health department where other people could be sick with COVID-19 didn't seem like a good idea. Yeah, um, it would be stupidity on the CPS and the officers, police officers part. I'll take them to the health department, even though there's a whole bunch of other people that could possibly have COVID, but we're going to have these investigated. The investigator didn't care. He said all the children needed to be seen. 
Well, let's back up. There was the children did not have any bruises. They already seen that, but they had to be checked out anyhow. That's when Chrissy called Homeschool Legal Defense Association. According to this, their attorney, T.J. Schmidt, is helping Bill and Christy bring this wholly unnecessary investigation to a close. You know, I could read you time and time and time again. Let's see. For years, HSLDA has been advocating for CPS reform. What happened to Bill and Christy illustrates the need for two specific reforms, even if we were not currently enduring COVID-19. CPS has weaponized COVID-19 so they can take children. Now, reform number one is eliminate anonymous reports. Instead, require reporters to leave verifiable contact information that will remain confidential unless a report is later determined to be knowingly false or malicious. This would significantly reduce the number of false reports, which would free up overworked CPS investigators to focus on cases where their assistance is truly needed. One part of due process is your ability to confront your accuser. I mean, if someone's accusing you, let's say you get robbed and they say, well, you don't have a right to know who is accusing you of robbery. Well, then how do they proceed? Well, People testify, oh yeah, John Smith, this is the person who robbed me. How do you know? I recognize him. I recognize what the person was wearing. They give a physical description. CPS is the only one where you don't have to know your accuser. Because if they testify, oh, well, there could be repercussions against the accuser. If it's a CPS social worker, they don't have to tell you who made the phone call. Now, this is the one thing. CPS hotlines, and this is from the article, CPS hotlines are too easily weaponized. HSLDA sees this often during a divorce or child custody cases or in disputes among neighbors. We don't know who made the report against Bill and Christie, but we have a good guess and has all the hallmarks of a weaponized false anonymous tip made by someone who is familiar with CPS practices. And that is the main issue. You can make an accusation against someone. No, that person will never know who you are. But make no mistake. Even if it's false, that has to follow that person. There is a database, a child abuse database. And 
that will follow the person wherever they go, whether or not it's proven true or false or whatever. Well, I will say this. Get rid of it. Tell these people, hey, look, if you're going to accuse them, if it's found out to be false, they'll have to bring charges against you. Now, the tip referred to five kids, and the bank was on, the only place where Bill and Christy left their two older ch kids in the van. The tipster knew that the parents had driver's licenses from different states, something the bank teller also knew. Okay, that's key. Any other place, sounds like Bill did not show his ID, but Christy did. Or maybe they didn't even have to show ID. The false tip said Bill was an unrelated male, which is a known risk factor for child maltreatment. Well, how did they know that he wasn't the children's father? The false tip also said the children had bruises on their arms that appeared to be causing, caused by grabbing the kind of accusation that gets a quick response. In fact, because it was a cool day and all the children were wearing long sleeves, whoever made the tip had not had the opportunity to see their arms at all. If the tipster left contact information, we intend to get it. Most likely, the tip was made anonymously. Well, if it's a cool day, if it's the fall or winter, you're going to have long sleeves. How are you going to be able to tell if someone has bruises? Unless, of course, the children decide, hey, we're going to take our shirts off. And I don't think the parents are going to allow that. So... Now, when we come back, the reform number two, I will go into. As you can see, CPS is some, it's an agency with too much power. I will say that. But I will say, when all is said and done, hopefully, families like Bill and Christy won't have to go through this. Welcome back. Well, this has been an exciting episode today, hasn't it? Well, I did say I'd go over to Second Reform, and this is from this group. Reform number two, ban open-ended investigations. You know, the type that, you know, there's no end in sight that they can come back, investigate endlessly. Bill and Christie's experience also illustrates the need for what the author calls off-ramp legislation. That is, the requirement that caseworkers terminate an investigation immediately once they determine the allegations made in the report are false. You know, a hotline tip should not be an invitation to fish around for additional details about a family's life. A typical investigation includes private interviews with the children, body checks, in other words, strip searches, searches of the home, medical records, checks, and more. And contrary to common sense, 
It is understood by CPS investigators around the country that once they begin this intrusive process, they must complete it even if they discover the tip is false. Wow. So in other words, they have to stop if they accuse you or your family or your significant other of abuse if there's no abuse. And after our, now this is from the author of this. And after hours call, the person handled a few years ago aptly illustrates the point. A homeschool mom and HSLDA member calling from Virginia told this person that a CPS investigator was at her door demanding to come in and interview her children. Based on a report that the mother frequently left her toddlers unattended by the pool in the backyard. But Mr. Mason, she said, there's two things wrong with this. First, my children are all teenagers. Mr. Mason says, what's the second thing? This woman says, well, more calmly than Mr. Mason would have been, I don't have a swimming pool. Now, I'll read that again if your jaw just dropped. But Mr. Mason, she said, there's two things wrong with this. First, my children are all teenagers. What's the second thing? I asked. Well, she said, more calmly than I would have, I don't have a swimming pool. Now, remember, the investigators, the person make the report, stated to a CPS investigator that based on a, it was based on a report that the mother frequently left her toddlers unattended by the pool in the backyard. So let's go over this, shall we? And you're probably rolling your eyes like, I can't believe they did this. Her teenager, her children are all teenagers. That's number one. Number two, she doesn't have a swimming pool. The person who reported this, are they they actually looking at the right yard? I mean, it's really strange how all these happen. But hey, weirder things have happened in CPS. Those of you that have been investigated by CPS know this all too well. Forgetting that I was in CPS investigator land, (laughs) I love this. I'm going to read that again. Forgetting that I was in CPS investigator land, I momentarily thought that common sense would prevail. Mr. Mason obviously is in CPS investigator land, a fictitious place where everyone abuses their children, that there is no such thing as a good parent. Okay, let's go on. Mr. Mason said, I told my caller to take the investigator to the backyard and show him that there was no swimming pool. Then I spoke to him 
certain that my unassailable logic would lead to the conclusion that the investigator should move along because there was nothing to see here. You know, nothing to see here, nothing to see here. Okay, Mr. Mason, the author of this, says, As I am sure you will agree, I began, the anonymous report is false. There is no swimming pool to leave anyone beside unattended, even if this mother had toddlers, which she doesn't. Okay, as if speaking to a young child, and a none-too-bright one at that, the investigator explained, It doesn't really matter that there is no pool. I have started an investigation, and I cannot leave until I complete it. I still need to look inside the home and interview the children privately. Okay. Let's recap what's happened here. Okay. We're going to start at the very beginning. One, a report was made. Not as we report. Woman named Virginia. Oh, calling from Virginia. I apologize. A homeschool mom from Virginia had called this Mr. Mason that a CPS investigator was at her door demanding to come in and interview her children. It was based on a report that the mother frequently left her toddlers unattended by the pool in the backyard. The homeschool mom had stated there were two things wrong with this. That first, her children were all teenagers. And second, that she does not have a swimming pool. So, is anyone else confused by this? Because it sounds like she, she must have, like, remember the old uh, Get Smart she must have a, a switch she flips and that a something goes over the pool that makes it disappear. Maybe it looks like grass or something. Okay. It continues. It then became a whole thing. Now, imagine how much more sense it would have made for the investigator to be freed up to acknowledge that the tip was false and then go about his real business helping children who were really in danger that would make common sense you do realize that cps investigators for the most part do not use common sense there are some that do but for the most part they're there for one reason it's not for the best interest of the children it's for the best interest of their pocketbook remember the adoption and safe families act of 1997 really check into it hslda handles this kind of call way too often if our members involve us in the proceedings early enough. Our attorneys are skilled at shepherding investigations to smooth landings, avoiding some of their more unpleasant, intrusive, and damaging aspects. Now, mind you, I am just reading this article, and I'm telling you exactly what is being told in this article. Now, the reason why I brought up this in COVID and why the corruption of child protection services? You're starting to see their actions. You know, we should move on. Let's see. 
One possible interpretation of what happened to Bill and Christy and that HSLDA will be looking into is that a bank employee had heightened concern about COVID-19, was offended by a large family invading her space, and made the hotline tip as a form of retaliation. And it does happen. There are people that don't like large crowds. There are people that feel that a large family is a threat. It also appears that whoever made the call knew how to juice up the details with just the right kind of false information to cause an overreaction by CPS. In the fullness of time, we hope to get to the bottom of the situation and remedy this injustice. Now, when that happens, the reporter says we will report back. Now, there is a part that I would like to read to you. This is James R. Mason. He's the Vice President of Litigation and Development. He says that I suspect the COVID-19 crisis could lead to more panicked, false reports of this kind. While this is something to be aware of, God's strong words of comfort reassure us. Now, I'm going to read this. This is this person saying... I am a Christian, but remember that this is in the spirit of what's going on. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread. That's Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 6a. And just as panic isn't a good response to a pandemic, it's not family's best response to the possibility of false CPS reports either. In both cases, being measured, wise, and brave will get us through. So keep calm, wash your hands, and call HSLDA. We're here no matter what. Now, if you want more information on this, Mr. Mason is an attorney, litigator, and homeschooling dad who has helped HSLDA win a number of landmark cases establishing and protecting homeschool freedom. Now, for more information, you can go to youthtoday.org. Child welfare's response to COVID-19 is sickening. That's another one. Now, the one is from HSLDA. Look that up. On the next episode, I will be going over a... Uh, Something that I don't think anyone should have to go through. If I didn't say it before, I'm saying it now. CPS is not your friend. They're supposed to be helping families. But so far as you heard, they've done everything but. This is David Shore for Corruption of Child Protection Services.